0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: Hello, and thanks for listening to the Out of the Blue Podcast. I'm Nitin Seem, si, the digital media editor for the Blue Journal, and today we will discuss an article published in the September 1st, 2017, AJRCCM that's entitled, Assessing the Generalizability of the National Lung Screening Trial, Comparison of Stage 1 Patients by Dr. Nicole Tanner and colleagues. I'm joined today by Dr. Tanner, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina, as well as Dr. Neil Navani, lead clinician for lung cancer and the Tertiary Diagnostic and Interventional Bronchoscopy Services at University College London Hospitals. Dr. Navani wrote the editorial accompanying Dr. Tanner's paper. So I'd like to start the podcast with a question for Dr. Navani. The current paper uh, is an analysis that relates to the National Lung Screening Trial, or NLST as we'll refer to it. Some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with that study, so I was wondering if you could provide um, us some background of what they studied in NLST and what they found.
0: Thank you Nitin. Uh, So the uh, NLST, this was a really major trial that enrolled more than 53,000 asymptomatic people at high risk for lung cancer at 33 US medical centers and and the enrollment took place between 2002 and 2004. Um, I think it's quite helpful to discuss the uh, eligibility criteria. So the participants were aged 55 to 74 they had to have smoked for more than 30-pack years. And if they were former smokers, they had to have quit within the previous 15 years. And then importantly, the protocol stated that they must have no medical condition that poses a significant risk of mortality during the period of the trial. So so these participants were then randomized to to undergo three annual screenings with either low-dose CT or uh, chest radiograph. Uh, And what they found was that in the CT-screened arm, that 63% of patients with lung cancer had stage 1 disease and 13% had stage four disease, compared to in the chest X-ray arm that 48% had stage 1 disease and 21% stage 4 disease. So this stage shift did translate into a significant lung cancer-specific mortality reduction of 20% and also an all-cause mortality uh, reduction of 6.7%. So the NLST was a very large, extremely well-conducted, really pivotal trial that has shaped lung cancer screening guidance in the U.S. and worldwide. Thank you, Dr. Navani, for that brief explainer. Uh,
1: And uh, and now, Dr. Tanner, I'd I'd like to get into a little bit more background about, about your manuscript. Your group studied older patients who met NLST eligibility criteria. And in addition, you looked at outcomes in patients with less versus more comorbidities. I was wondering why you chose to study those groups in particular.
2: Uh, it was really interesting um, to look at that particular population because when you look at the total participants of the NLST and you stratify by age, a minority of the participants were um in the Medicare age, okay, and so we know the average age of a diagnosis of lung cancer is around 70. However, this was an underrepresented group in the National Lung Screening Trial. If you compare the demographics of those participants in the NLST to the U.S. population who would be eligible by smoking history um, and age, you'll see that the NLST participants were overall younger. Uh, They were also more educated. They were more likely to be former smokers, whereas those eligible for screening in the U.S. are older, less educated, um, more ethnic minorities, et cetera, as well as um, an older population. And so, you know, they're never going to repeat a trial of this caliber in an older group of patients solely. And so it was important to us to try to assess the generalizability of the findings. We know with randomized trials that oftentimes when it broad-based implementation happens, that the benefits seen in a well-conducted, strict, ruled trial don't necessarily translate. And so it was important to us to try to determine whether there would be the same um, outcomes in an elderly population. I should mention that um, within the NLSC, there was an analysis done after the fact looking at the Medicare-aged uh, population by Dr. Pinsky, and that um, did show that they had good outcomes, but those patients also had other competing causes of death. And so we really wanted to look at that more closely.
1: I think that uh, obviously makes a, a lot of sense. Uh, we're all worried about uh, more mort- higher mortality in older patients. And, and as you mentioned, higher mortality when you get out of the cons uh, the Uh, the the construct of a well-designed, randomized clinical trial. Uh, The other part I wanted to ask about um, are looking at the groups with less versus more comorbidities.
2: Sure. So, the interesting thing and um, what was pointed out earlier, one of the criteria for entry into the National Lung Screening Trial was that a person not only had to be asymptomatic, but they had to be well enough to undergo surgical resection for a screen-detected cancer. Um, The trial was published back in 2011, and since then, broad-based implementation has started in the United States. And oftentimes, uh, there is the argument, it's a very heated argument, that um, patients with multiple comorbidities that don't necessarily match the entry criteria to the NLST ought to be screened because they can undergo other treatments with curative intent, um, namely stereotactic body radiotherapy, or SBRT, SABR is how other... Others will refer to it. Um, the point is, is that in the NLST, none of the patients, if you look at their comorbidities, um, had very many. Uh, we used the Carlson Comorbidity Index, and I'm sure we'll discuss that a little bit later about the faults with that. But um, you know, it's a very well accepted uh, scale to determine mortality based on large data and ICD-9 codes, et cetera. And so when we looked at the um, Uh, Carlson comorbidity index for the participants in the NLST, even in that older age group, which we limited this study to, um, they all had Carlson comorbidity indexes of zero or one indicating that they did not have many comorbid conditions. What we know is that, that not, that's not always true, especially in the elderly population who are likely to have more chronic comorbidities. And so um, the argument that's made um, for screening in patients who might have competing causes of death is one um, that is an active area of debate. It's an active area of research, um, but it's important to note that the NLST did not study uh, outcomes in screening patients that had multiple comorbidities or competing causes of death. And so um, in the absence of repeating a trial as big as the NLST in those uh, groups of patients with multiple comorbidities, um, this was the best, uh, next best thing that we could come up with was trying to look at um, what the outcomes might be in patients that are older with more comorbidities had they been screened for lung cancer.
1: So this raises several issues, and uh, you know, Dr. Navani, uh, I wanted to, to bring the next question to you because obviously in response to NLST, um, uh, countries with nationalized health care have to make decisions, even uh, Medicare has to make decisions, and the U.S. Preventative Task Force has made um, sort of their, given their guidance on uh, recommendations. And as Dr. Tanner uh, mentioned, you know certainly when you get outside of this well-conducted trial, and patients do have more comorbidities and maybe older, you know we're not sure if you'll find the same effect. So, just before we get into the meat of this study, I'd like to ask you if you could summarize the current recommendations regarding uh, lung cancer screening for at-risk people in general, and then specifically for the groups that Dr. Tanner mentioned, older patients and those who have multiple
0: comorbidities? Yes. So as we know, there are several bodies that currently recommend CT screening for uh, lung cancer, but the guidelines are not quite uniform. Um, You've already mentioned the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force uh, guideline, and perhaps we can start with that. So that recommends annual screening for lung cancer with low-dose ct in adults aged 55 to 80 who have a 30-pack year smoking history uh, and currently smoke or who have quit within the past 15 years they do say that if that person develops a health problem that substantially limits life expectancy or the ability or willingness to have curative lung surgery they should not have screening but it that substantially limits life expectancy to my knowledge is not um, very clearly defined at all in that uh, in that document the one of the other guide commonly quoted guidelines is the um, the excellent ACCP guidelines which obviously very closely mirrors the NLST um, criteria and they uh, with regards to comorbidity say that they would preclude potentially curative treatment um, So any comorbidity, uh, so individuals with severe comorbidities uh, would uh, that would preclude potentially curative treatment and/or life expectancy. We suggest that CT screening should not be performed. So that door, to my mind, when I read that, is a little bit more open. They're saying potentially curative treatment, Um, and then another guideline that I found very interesting was the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guideline because actually they essentially advocates screening someone with at least one comorbidity. So they have a, an interesting um, uh, group of patients, those above the age of 50 uh, and more than 20-pack-year smoking history with one additional risk factor. And the, the risk factor that they, uh, uh, that they include um, uh, are things such as uh, CAPD or pulmonary fibrosis. So so there's a little little bit of variation between the guidelines as to who exactly they would um, consider eligible for screening, Um, and to my mind, no very clear guidance on sort of what degree of comorbidity should preclude screening.
1: Well, that's a very helpful summary, and I guess it it, uh, leads nicely into the current study that uh, Dr. Tanner and colleagues undertook to, uh, to try to, I guess, provide more guidance so, um, Dr. Tanner, your, your group used data from two separate sources, the Surveillance, Epidemiology and End Results, or SEER program of cancer registries, uh, and Medicare claims covered for health care services received from the time of Medicare eligibility until death. And you compare the outcomes of older people who receive treatment for early stage lung cancer to those from NLST. So... Um, And I think, obviously, your data is only as good as your data sources. So, if you wouldn't mind, could you please tell us why you chose those data sources and how many people you were able to study from these data sources?
2: Sure. The reason to choose those data sources is that they're very robust. Um, You know, the SEER Medicare data, they're actually linked, um, and and it helps us to see what uh, type of diagnostic odyssey and or treatment odyssey these patients that were diagnosed with cancer had. Um, certainly, as you said, it's only as good as the data um, that's put in, and uh, one of the big limitations is that we don't have a very good smoking history for these patients. It's usually marked as a ever smoker or never smoker, um, but there is no pack years, so that's one of the bigger limitations in doing these comparisons because we know that um, in the NLST, these are an at-risk population based on smoking history, and that's not something we were able to account for. Um, the reason to use it, though, is because it does provide a, a a robust amount of information and data that can be mined. Um, and cancer studies are often done, these large database studies are done using SEER Medicare data. Um, SEER surveils or, or goes from 13 different regions. You have to put an application in to receive it. Um, and, and your protocols are reviewed uh, by the council as our manuscripts before they're, they're published. They do take a look and make sure that we're representing the data properly. Um, so that was the reason. The other reason is, as I mentioned before, is that we are not going to be conducting a randomized control trial of the caliber of NLST in an elderly population, and so in the absence of doing that, and while data is being collected prospectively with new screening trials and looking at outcomes, or and I'm sorry, not trials, but new screening programs, looking at outcomes in this cohort of of patients. Um, while we're waiting for all of that to come up, it, it seemed reasonable to go back and look at um, patients in this Medicare, your Medicare data set over the past 10 years diagnosed with stage one lung cancer. Well, certainly uh, the argument could be made, well, maybe these patients weren't, um asymptomatic as the NLST patients were. Um, But stage 1A and stage 1 B lung cancers are typically asymptomatic um, in that they're small and uh, don't really cause too much trouble. And so it's the closest to a screen detected cancer that you're going to find. Um, You know, you could certainly make the argument that these folks presented with something else that led to uh, an incidental finding that turned out to be a cancer. Um, We don't have that type of information. But this was the best we could do and we tried to um, refine the cohort that we included in the analysis to best match the NLST patients um, that participate in the trial in this elderly population.
1: You did mention some of the, the limitations, um, but you, uh, you had quite a, num- uh, a large number of patients that you know, hopefully would be able to wash out some of those limitations. Do you want to describe the number of patients you had um, from the database as compared to what we're looking at in NLST?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so when we looked at the 10 years' worth of data in this year Medicare um, data set of stage one patients, that's both 1A and 1B, we had over 37,000 patients um, to pull from versus NLST in this age group. There was an 831, and I would draw the listeners to figure one, which shows how we kind of broke it down. Um So we had that number, and then when you refine based on the age of 65 to 74, there was 15,000 patients for which we had uh, Medicare treatment linked data for over 12,000, and then there was 9,000 patients who underwent surgery for stage 1A and 1B disease versus uh, 424 um, that we saw in NLST and 379 of whom underwent surgery. So it's a large number of patients Um, And then we further uh, refined the cohort and um, named, if you will, what we called the SEER NLST eligible. And those were the patients that had the Carlson comorbidity index that matched that of the NLST. So either a Carlson comorbidity index of zero and one marked as a current or former smoker, again, with the caveat that we don't know the PAC years, but there was over 3,000 patients in that group, actually close to 4,000. And then the SEER NLST ineligible group, uh, which we termed, and those were patients who were current and former smokers who had stage 1A and 1B disease, underwent surgery, but they had a Carlson comorbidity index of two or greater. So not quite matching the NLST. And so we said that those folks probably would have been ineligible um, to participate in a screening uh, trial like the NLST by virtue of their comorbidity index.
1: Thank you for explaining that. And to our listeners who are listening on um, the uh, ATS Journal's website, there is a direct link to the article to see that figure one as uh, Dr. Tanner was guiding you through um, the different patients and the, the different end for the different groups. So I think we've left the listeners in Long enough, uh, Dr. Tanner. So I, I was hoping you could uh, summarize for us what you found in regards to to one the surgical outcomes, um, as well as um, um, number two surgical outcomes compared to patients who received um, radiation instead of surgery.
2: Sure. So just a little bit about the surgical outcomes. I think it's important as we talk about the generalizability of the NLST to discuss the surgical mortality associated in that trial. So in the NLST, the mortality um, was 1%. And when you look at other um, registries and databases and studies uh, that talk about outcomes from uh, thoracic surgery... Those usually range from 2% to 5%, depending on who you read. So it's really important to note that the NLST patients who underwent surgery had an extremely good surgical outcome at 1% that really hasn't been mirrored in other studies. And I think that's likely due to these patients being treated at high-volume centers by dedicated thoracic surgeons. Both of those factors have certainly been associated with improved surgical outcomes, and so that's the first and and that again gets the translatability of the n l s c even if you look at um some of the other uh, lung cancer screening studies such as the dante out of Italy the surgical mortality there was higher at two percent um and so it's not quite um i don't think going to be the 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 result as as this gets pushed out broad-based, but we'll have to look and see. Uh, So that's important because it diminishes the reduction in mortality from lung cancer screening if the mortality from the treatment is higher than the said 1% in the NLST. Um, So so that's the first little bit that I would say about surgical mortality. And so um, not to leave anyone in suspense, uh, what we wanted to see was in those um, in the SEER Medicare cohort that matched the NLST, so this is that SEER NLST eligible group, again, with the low comorbidity score with the stage 1 lung cancer that underwent surgery, we looked at the 30, 60, 90-day mortality. Um, and found that it was quite good in this group um, and was very similar to that of uh, the NLST um, patients who underwent surgery in this older age group. And that provides some reassurance to us as we offer screening to this uh, Medicare age population. If they match the entry criteria for NLST, I can feel comfortable that if we do have a screen-detected cancer, um, that their outcomes, 30, 60, and 90-day surgical mortality, would be very uh, similar. Uh, Also, um, what we found was that the five-year overall cancer-specific survival didn't differ between um, the SEER NLST eligible and the NLST participants. Again, very reassuring. Um, What we did see, though, is that the all-cause mortality uh, was better in this group uh, in the NLST group versus the Seer Medicare group. Um, the second part of your question was uh, to address those patients who did not receive surgery um, in, in in the Sierra Medicare group. And so um, I will say that there was a small number of patients in the NLST. I think the number was 25 in this age group, Medicare age, uh, who had stage one detected cancers who elected to undergo radiation therapy. Uh, and their outcomes were worse than the NLST surgical patients and worse than this year Medicare patients who underwent surgery. I uh, can't really say much about 25 patients, but that does suggest that maybe um, these other curative intent treatments might not be go- as good as surgery. And that's a Another conversation to have, which is um, often a heated debate between radiation oncologists and thoracic surgeons. Um, what I will say is that those patients in the um, cohort of of Medicare who had uh, more comorbidities, uh, so the SEER and LST ineligible that did undergo surgery also had uh, far worse outcomes if you look at the 30, 60, and 90-day mortality from surgery as well. Um, So that suggests that there's competing causes of death and that perhaps this group of patients older with more comorbidities might not do as well if if treated for a screen-detected cancer.
1: Thank you for that summary. And so Dr. Navani, I'd love to get your impression. Obviously, uh Dr. Tanner mentioned some of the 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 caveats and assumptions. Um, um so but as I ask for your impression about two of those uh, those findings. One, um that there's in the database a similar surgical mortality in the elderly compared to the NLST um group, um, as well as worse outcome in those who received radiation, granted that being a low end of those
0: patients in NLST? Yeah, so the, uh, I think the study by Dr. Tanner and her colleagues is, is actually really important and overall is extremely reassuring. Um, so the, the headline that they showed that surgical mortality and five-year lung cancer-specific survival was similar in the SEER Medicare LST eligible group. Reported to NLST uh, compared to the uh, NLST trial patients, um, you know, is, is, is really validating for for all of us that that sort of run um, uh, screening programs. Um, the the thing that you know I, I found quite intuitive when I was looking at the graphs is that those who have more comorbidities, so in the CA, uh, the CA NLST ineligible group, have worse survival following surgery. I, w- I, I would normally I would have expected that, um, and uh, what we don't know is if this group would have done even worse without screening and surgery, and as Dr. Tanner says, we're, we're unfortunately never going to do that that trial. Um, I'm also slightly uh, hesitant and perhaps less convinced by the data um, uh, that shows a worse outcome in those that receive radiation, um, Dr. Tanner has already said that the limitation in terms of uh, numbers. But we've also got to remember that the SEER Medicare database um, doesn't tell us about radiotherapy uh, dosages, um, and we, uh, I guess, presume that many of the patients have had curative doses when in fact, if they're palliative, we may be underestimating the uh, uh, the survival in the SEER uh, Medicare uh, patients. Um, and then, obviously, something that's already been mentioned is, is, is SABRE, and that May be more suitable for uh, than surgery for many patients with comorbidities and stage one lung cancer, and there is tantalizing data out there that suggests that these patients um, maybe in two thousand and seventeen have do have a meaningful option, and that Sabre may be a a reasonable alternative to uh, to surgery with similar outcomes, which may not have been the case during the uh, during the LST trial in sort of 2002 to two thousand uh, and two to onwards. Uh, thank you for that, Dr. Navani. So, um, yeah, obviously, there are some
1: aspects of the database you're not really able to assess uh, the specifics of uh, of radiation therapy. Um, and then you, Dr. Navani did allude to uh, the comorbidities, and Dr. I would like to talk about that some more. Um, as uh, previously mentioned, you divided the patients from the Seer Medicare database into those with zero or one comorbidity or more than one, and you did use a modification of the Charleston comorbidity Index, so if you could summarize um what you found regarding surgical outcomes in those with less versus more comorbidities
2: sure, so those that had more comorbidities um tended or did worse um, than those that that had less comorbidities and that's True of the 30, 60, 90 day, and um, you know overall survivorship from uh, lung cancer, as well as I think five year all cause survivorship. So the NLST, SEER NLST ineligible group who had higher comorbidities just did worse.
1: Yeah, um, and then so so Dr. Navani, obviously you know you already mentioned some of the challenges in prior guidelines uh, in discussing comorbidities. Um, do you have any concerns uh, regarding limitations of
0: the the, the Deo modified uh, Charleston comorbidity index? Yeah, so so I think documenting comorbidities in lung cancer is it, it has been a challenge for a long time. Um and many um institutions have used the Charleston uh Charleston Comorbidity Index, um, including um the National Lung Cancer Audit in the UK have used it for many years to risk adjust um patient outcomes. But actually when we look at how the index was developed, that so developed in nineteen eighty four based on six hundred General medical patients. Um, it, it, it's never really been um, validated in patients with lung cancer. That it was modified um, uh, by uh, Deo and colleagues, and in 1992, and they used um, a cohort of 27,000 patients undergoing lumbar spinal surgery to work out outcomes um, based on um, comorbidities. Um, so. Uh, it, Clearly, the patient population that we're we're talking about in terms of lung cancer screening is very different um, to those in which the the tools were uh, were were developed. Um, and to my mind, they haven't really been well validated in patients with lung cancer. I totally agree that they seem to be accepted and uh, and they're used, but they've never really been sort of interrogated very very well in in, in a lung cancer population. One other pop, one other problem I have with the um, uh, w- with the modified Charlton index is that it doesn't really take into account the severity of the comorbid conditions. So a patient has the APD or not without taking into account um, the severity of that uh, condition. It doesn't really allow us to um, sort of place greater importance on some of the cardiopulmonary conditions that, that really is what we're talking about here that, that are going to impact uh, thoracic surgery decision uh, and outcomes. And you know, increasingly now there, there's a lot of interest, certainly in the UK, about implementing comorbidity um, scales routinely into clinical practice. And we've piloted the use of ACE27, which is a, a, another comorbidity index for uh, for lung cancer patients. And there are specific lung cancer indices. One developed by uh, Tamamagri in 2003, and another one um, by Milroy and colleagues, uh, uh, slightly more recently. But it would be you know, perhaps valuable in the future to see how some of these other scales that have been validated in patients with lung cancer specifically um, may impact on uh, uh, the group to be screened.
2: I would agree with that 100%. I think that, you know, the Carlson Comorbidity Index is great. It's validated. It's very easily used in these large data sets with, you know, thousands and thousands of patients, but I would echo your sentiment in that it doesn't... um, show or describe the severity of illness. Um, And that's really important as you decide. Certainly, one wouldn't use the Carlson Comorbidity Index to decide whether or not a patient was eligible um, to undergo surgery or a good surgical candidate, right? So there's many other ways, and, and a lot of it's functional. Um, and so I think this is a big area of research as we continue to screen patients for lung cancer and determine who is eligible. And I think the big research question is when is someone too sick or have too many competing causes of death to undergo a lung cancer screening? How do we um, figure that out? And I don't think it's so black and white. Um, In fact, we have uh, recently met at the ATS with a group to um, come up with a research statement about comorbidities in lung cancer screening, Um, and we've identified a lot of the knowledge gaps, some of which we're discussing here, um, and also uh, ways to maybe better refine um, selection for lung cancer screening based on comorbidities. But I don't think one index is is right versus the other. I think that there's a lot of functional... Um, things that we need to take into place. Uh, One thing that comes to mind is the Bode Index, which is used for patients with COPD um, to predict their risk of dying from COPD. Uh, That's one thought in in patients presenting um, for lung cancer screening with a known diagnosis of COPD. Uh, So all of these questions are circulating, and I'm hoping that um, as we move forward that Screening centers will collect this kind of information, severity of illness, et cetera, to try to better um, inform the decisions that we make. Because right now, it's it's kind of a, you know, which which guidelines are you going to listen to, or are you going to follow the NCCN guidelines? Because then you can just screen everyone, basically. Or you know, you're going to be draw the line somewhere. Um, and I, I think that's really hard. And I think we struggle with that.
1: I think these are excellent points and uh, an important point recognizing that we need to do more research regarding comorbidities and lung cancer specific, obviously, as as you both have um, articulated. I mean... Yeah, things like climbing stairs or VO2 max or things related like Bode index may be more useful uh, than the other validated instruments that are more broadly applicable when we're talking about taking someone to, uh, you know, uh, lung cancer resection surgery. So uh, recognizing those limitations, uh, recognizing some of the challenges, obviously we we all agree that the data is uh, fascinating. And um, I wonder, I'd want to ask you both a question to close the podcast, and, and frankly, you know, how do, first, Dr. Tanner, it's your study, I'll ask you first. How do you think the study outcomes do inform that current guidance, the the differences between NCCN and ACCP and U.S. Preventive Tax, Task Force that Dr. Navani mentioned earlier? Um, how do you feel this study uh, informs the current guidance on who should be screened with uh, low-dose CT for lung cancer? Well, I think the one...
2: Um thing that it it does um, provide, and which Dr. Navani had mentioned earlier, I think it's reassuring now for those of us running screening programs. If we have a patient that's in the Medicare age population um, that has low comorbidities, you have someone that's very functional um, without a lot of severity of illness, that you would feel comfortable screening that patient and offering that patient lung cancer screening. Um, And I think there was a big worry, especially on my part and and the other investigators on this paper and people who are experts in the field, that um, there was just too few of these patients in the NLST to draw conclusions about outcomes in an elderly population. And so I've I feel reassured by this data. I think it supports lung cancer screening in carefully selected uh, patients in this age group. Um, I think it also sheds um, some maybe question or, or you know future research uh, questions about um, what exactly the treatment for screen-detected cancer is. Is it just surgery? Is it curative intent, SBRT, or SABR? Um, we don't have enough data on that. And there are the patients in the NLST were not screened with the intent of undergoing radiation therapy. Um and so I think that this informs the future research question. It doesn't answer that. I think it suggests that perhaps the outcomes from radiation therapy might not be as good in an elderly population. But that's with the caveat, as Dr. Navani said, that we don't know what type of um Radiation treatment they had more than likely it was not a state of the art s b r t that we do now in two thousand and seventeen, and so I think it's really important that as we move forward, screening programs collect information. Uh, on how their patients with stage 1 lung cancers get treated and that we pool data and look at the outcomes in those that are screened and elect to undergo SBRT instead of surgery. I think it's important that we look at the trials that are ongoing now that are direct head-to-head comparisons between SBRT and um, surgery for stage 1 cancer. The VALOR trial is one that's up and running at a number of Veterans Affairs hospitals that hope to answer that question. Of course, we won't have the results for the next 10 years, um, but these are things to to consider and things to try to um, understand to better communicate with our patients when we're offering them lung cancer screening.
1: And Dr. Navani, to close out the podcast, your final thoughts about how the study um, informs you about considering both who we screen and and how we treat uh, especially older patients with early-stage lung cancer?
0: Yeah, so I think Dr. Tanner's paper is is really important and provides a lot of validation for um, for screening the slightly older patient with um, uh, zero or one comorbidities. I I think that piece of information is is clear. I think it's uh, extremely reassuring, and I think very important. Uh, I, I think where we have to Perhaps exercise a little bit of caution is about drawing any further firm conclusions about excluding people with more than one comorbidity from screening programmes. So, to my, to my mind, as long as the patient is asymptomatic but has on paper a, a couple of comorbidities, if they're fit enough to have um, surgery, or in my view also uh, saber, then I would certainly consider. Um, them to go into um, a a screening program I I think there's also something that we have to balance here as well whereby if we exclude uh, uh, people with higher comorbidities there's a chance that we might actually reduce the risk of lung cancer in the population screened so we might actually end up picking fewer lung cancers and that may compromise Cost-effectiveness of a uh, of a screening program, which is certainly the the hot topic of debate uh, 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 on this side of the Atlantic. Um, the, the other thing I would point out is as well is our management of people with stage one disease has changed significantly since NLST. I totally uh, agree about the uh, the excellent survival figures that have been mentioned for patients undergoing surgery within the trial. Um, but our, our threshold for offering a vatslobectomy or or sabre as we've mentioned uh, i think is much lower now than it was perhaps uh, uh 15 years ago so uh, uh, i would say uh, Absolutely, this data is, is, is very helpful and uh, validates uh, uh, a lot of the uh, work that's being done in uh, in screening programs, but I think we perhaps need to exercise a bit of caution about um, excluding people based on number of um, comorbidities, because I, I, I just wonder whether they will still uh, benefit um, from SABRE or uh, more modern thoracic surgery techniques. And as Dr. Tanner says, there's definitely a lot more work to be done uh, in refining the eligibility criteria with respect to comorbidities. And hopefully that will happen as more real-world data accrues. Well, thank you both for a great discussion on an important paper.
1: Uh, to our listeners, you can find Dr. Tanner's article and Dr. Navani's, uh, accompanying, uh, Dr. Navani's accompanying editorial on the homepage for this podcast at atsjournal.org. To listen to more Out of the Blue podcasts, please subscribe via iTunes by searching for American Thoracic Society or Out of the Blue. You can also listen to other episodes in our podcast archive found at atsjournals.org. I'm Nathan Seam for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.